Thank you. Uh, Nina interviewed me and um, uh, about my selected poem eyes, which came out from Poetry Hotel Press, and uh, she did a wonderful job. I had to cut it a little bit, but not too much. And she wants to do more, so you may get more of this if you enjoy it. Um, in the meantime, I want to mention just a couple of things, and then we're going to go into the second half of the interview. One announcement. The wonderful, always innovative Ivan Arguez and the fine poet Andrew Joran will read at 7 p.m. this Friday, August 14th at Nefeli Cafe, 1854 Euclid Avenue, a little north of Hearst in Berkeley. It should be a powerful reading, and there'll be an open as well. Ivan Arguez, Andrew Joran, this Friday at 7, Nefeli Cafe, 1854 Euclid Avenue in Berkeley. And now it's 3.30, and instead of Nina Serrano doing a show about somebody else, it will be Nina and me talking about my selected poems, Eyes. This is Jack Foley, and my guest again is Nina Serrano. And she's my guest, but she's going to turn the tables on me. I'm turning 75 this year, and uh, 2015, and I've produced the selected poems of some considerable length. And um, I thought instead of just saying things about it, that I'd get somebody to ask me embarrassing questions about it. And so, of course, Nina was the perfect person. She's my pal and a colleague and all of those things. And you're familiar with her from KPFA. Nina, welcome to the uh, show once again. And tell me what you got. Thanks. It's fun to be here. I would say it's a pleasure to be here, but it's also just plain fun to have a friend that you can talk about poetry and you can ask the dumbest questions and then they give you the most brilliant and enlightening answers. Oh, what friend is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the last program that we did together, we were talking about your tendency to write between the lines yes. of other people's poems. Yes. And then when I asked you about it, as always, you gave me this very surprising answer that this was something common to Vietnamese to write in between each other's lines. Yes, I didn't know that until quite recently, but yes, apparently it is. Uh, and it, it, it cemented my love for the Vietnamese culture, uh, certainly. Uh, but yes, apparently they do it over there. Um, it's a call and response kind of thing. You know, and, and I think that's probably the way in which they do it. Um, I haven't experienced I don't know. I've got to get um, my friend Mai to show me some examples of this. But she assured me that it was done regularly by the Vietnamese. Uh, for me, it's a poem is often understood to be the expression of a single entity, a single person, uh, an, uh, an I, capital letter I. And what this does is to open the poem to other aspects. I think there are many voices in our minds. And so what I did was to respond to the poem by giving another voice a chance to speak as well within the poem. Well, it's always a surprise when I open my email and I see that you've done that. <laughs> and what I is he talking about? Who are these people? <laughs> but I always wonder, well, what does the other poet feel? Is the other poet angry that uh, 
his or her poem has been defiled. But no, it seems not at all, because then there'll be another poem written by that poet back to you sometimes. Sure. And my work is, is, is um, you know, it's, it's fine for people to do it to me as well. And I enjoy that. Um, but sometimes people do. There are poets who feel um, violated by that because they feel that their poem is their personal egocentric expression. And they don't like it if you invade it, uh, particularly if you invade it at the same level they've written it, if your lines are as good as theirs. Or if your lines are better than <laughs> well, theirs. Well, I didn't say that, <laughs> etc. They especially don't like that. But uh, So I have had that experience, and friends of mine who've done it have had that experience more than I. Uh, I have had it in one one case, really more than, not really more than one, um, and and people have not objected. I mean, I did it with a wonderful Michael McClure poem, and um, well, on the death of uh, a, a hundred whales, which is one of his iconic poems. It's it's a wonderful poem, and I did it as a response to. Um, as a birthday present for him and as a response to the poem. He loved it. He was terrific. And it opened the poem up in a way that, that you couldn't get it to be opened. Uh, with the Bukowski, what I did was um, I wrote a second poem within the lines of the Bukowski poem. Bukowski had written a poem about a cat murdering a bird. It's one of his best poems, actually. And it occurred to me that it's all about Bukowski. He doesn't say it, but that's what it's about. And so, I wrote a poem between the lines about somebody experiencing Bukowski reading that poem and what it meant. And um, Bukowski's first line is something like that. The cat had been following the bird all summer. My first line was, there was this cat. And cat in my line means a person, you know, hip sli- hipster slang. There was this cat. And the minute I wrote that, you know, the cat had been following the bird all summer. There was this cat. I knew I had a poem. And that's what began it. The juxtaposition of those two lines meant that I could write a poem within Bukowski's poem. And that was the very first one. And that you can find on my Wikipedia page. And how did he respond to that poem? He was dead. Oh, very safe. <laughs> yeah, very, exactly. very, very safe. Well, I, I could probably be sued. I don't know. <laughs> well, but, but yes, yes, that, that, that was not a problem. <laughs> there's a whole section of this writing between the lines in your book, Eyes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And... Uh, I've done it with various of my friends, and uh, Ivan Arguez loves it, and, and uh, Ivan and I always do call and response back and forth. It's been something that, that we've done for years now. Uh, we even did a little book uh, in which we were both imitating uh, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and both speaking in Finnegan's Wake speak, speech, and that was a lot of fun to do. Well, in this writing between the lines uh, segment of Eyes... You have many poems, and a lot of them seem to be with Arguez. Yes, yes. So I'm, he yeah. very much is, is into this with you. Absolutely. But a newcomer uh, that has been very interesting and that has helped you with this book is uh, Clara Sue. Clara Sue, yes. Yes, she has. She, um, uh, she and I co-publish Poetry Hotel Press, which is the publisher of this book. And yes... 
um, uh, Clara has Clara came to me as a student, and so I've imposed this kind of thing on her, and um, she took to it like a duck to water, and and has written things in response to me as well. And um, so we've done a number of poems along those lines. I put a few of them into the book because I thought they were re quite really um, successful and interesting poems. We've recorded some of them. And there's particularly one where you pick up the theme twice, the elegy to a lost necklace. Yes, she wrote me a poem... Uh, and she had lost her necklace. And in fact, the poem was an octo, which is a form invented by Nina Serrano. Well, I don't, I don't know that it's a form invented by me, but I think the form of it I use is invented by me. I think somewhere in this world, some other poet invented the form, though we can't seem to find any documentation of where it comes from. I think you did it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. But yes, that, so, I mean, uh, Clara wrote me a poem in which she had lost her necklace, uh, which indeed she had, you know, and so I offered her in response a necklace of words. Elegy to a Lost Necklace an octo. Small aqua star gleamed on my throat, held by a string of naked beads, stunning in its simplicity. Now the bell tolls, for it is lost, the one necklace I treasured most, memory of its simplicity, held by a string of naked beads, small star gleaming in dark unknown. And now I'll read between the lines as you open it. Small aqua star gleamed on my throat. Here, take this, a necklace of words. Held by a string of naked beads. Sorrow for the lost aqua star. Stunning in its simplicity. I saw you wear it more than once. Now the bell tolls, for it is lost. But beyond the fact of seeing. The one necklace I treasured most. Things take on our deeper being. Memory of its simplicity. I saw you wear it more than once. Held by a string of naked beads. Sorrow for the sweet aqua star. Small star gleaming in that dark unknown. Here, take this. A necklace of words. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's very exciting to read a poem like that with someone. Well, I have listened to your recordings of it more than once. And so different times I'm able to hear different, different things. things. Yeah. And I have also, I first read them in your other book, The Western Star. Yes. And oh, tell me the c complete title. I oh, love Powerful it. Western Star. Yeah, I love that. Oh, Powerful Western I Star. I stole the line from Walt Whitman. Whitman's line was, Oh, Powerful Fallen Western Star. <laughs> I took Fallen out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. So I first read it there, some of those things that you recorded, and then I heard them several times over. And so... Uh, they were different experiences each time that I'd hear them. They're different experiences for us as we uh, as we speak them. Um, one of the classic ones, which is Chorus Song, which is in this book, um, for me, I mean, they're different experiences for Adele and me as we do them each time. And when the audience differs, you know, I mean, when, uh, we, we, we still do certain things that are always the same, but they're also different experiences each time. 
And then another theme that comes up and that I, as a listener to your programs over the years, always thought of you. And now on your new website, you have a picture of you with that, which is Jack the Vaudevillian. Oh, I, yeah. mean, I always think of you as the learned poet uh, making allusions to poetry throughout the ages and across the globe. But also then there's this other Jack that knows how to tap dance. Absolutely. And even at 75 will sometimes give us a little shuffle hope to Buffalo. Uh, and that's in the poems. There's lots of little funny vaudevillian bits that Absolutely. I enjoy so much. Most notably, the Marx Brothers ruling uh, yes. the world. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's one of the ones I like a lot, too, in Chico's voice. And he, it was Chico, not Chico. Uh, he liked women, and that's why they called him Chico. But um, one of the things that's true, I mean, I mentioned that um, we often think of the poem as being the product of an eye, a single voice, all of that. But in vaudeville, an awful lot of the acts... Um, were at least two people, Weber and Fields, Gallagher and Sheen, Burns and Allen. I mean, there were many, many, many uh, acts that included more than one person. And I used to go, I th was it on Thursdays or Saturdays? There was one night of the week at the Lowy's Theaters in New York where they would have vaudeville mm -hmm. with the movie. Yes. It was already that the vaudeville houses had been turned into movie theaters by then. But some of them would have still a little vaudeville act, yes. either between the movies or after the movies. And my uncle always used to take me. So I saw a lot of vaudeville, and of course I loved it. Yeah, oh yeah, it was wonderful. And it's multiple. That's part of the interesting thing about vaudeville was that, that there were all kinds of things, dog acts, I mean, <laughs> you know, name them. There were all kinds of things that people did in vaudeville, and they were not... Unified. I'm not so sure that I think unity has uh, it has a good reputation in our culture, and I'm not so sure that it should. Um, that you don't want unity so much as what you want is a way in which various parts of the mind or various parts of the country, various parts of a nation can speak to one another. They don't have to be unified, but they do have to talk to one another and allow things to come out and to flow and to find ways in which they can live together, etc. But that doesn't mean they have to be the same. I mean, it seems to me that unity and the notion of imperialism in certain respects are the same. I want this thing to be unified, and when you want it to be unified, you leave out things that are going to disunify it. Or, you, you want know, it monocultural. Monocultural, exactly. And you, what, what, what is preferable is multicultural, and that is exactly what Fortville was. You know? I remember magic acts, women being sawed in half. <laughs> yes, right. And talk about multiplicity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's you all over. <laughs> yeah. And tap dancing. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff. And st stand-up jokes. And almost always the acts were at least two people. Back in the uh, d days when it really... Um Start, yes, I mean, you had to have somebody to talk to, right? Um, but uh, one of the things that Who people... Who was that lady I saw you with last night? That, that was, was no lady, lady. That, that was, was my, my wife. That was no ladle, that was my fife, is one of the ways <laughs> that you yes. um, there Also, people, the Vaudeville's uh, um, audience would often respond 
in an active way. People would bring vegetables. They didn't like it. They'd throw the vegetables at them. Uh, there was a great routine that Fred Allen, probably improvising, did with his friend Jack Benny. It was, Benny did an act with a pig on the stage. The pig was there to eat up the things that people threw at Benny. Long pause. Sometimes he used two pigs. <laughs> there were so many pigs thrown, etc. And then later, those people reappeared. Jack Benny and oh yeah, no, they they, they got appeared it, on yeah. radio and and television later too. Uh, I was actually, though I was never in Fordville, I was on the Ed Sullivan Show. So really, was, doing what? Singing with the Porchester Senior High School Choir. Wow. Sullivan came from Porchester, my hometown, not where I was born, but it is my hometown. And so um, he was—he uh, decided to do his own story, and he had the Porchester Senior High School Choir on. And there were all kinds of people who were on. It was an interesting show. One of the acts that was on was Smith and Dale, which was uh, the basis for uh, Neil Simon's play, The Sunshine Boys. These two old Jewish men who did a successful act from about 1913. I've got ancient recordings of Smith and Dale doing the same act. It was the Dr. Cronkite act. I'm sick, doctor. Yeah, you know the thing you had before? Yeah, you got it again. <laughs> that was their act. And that you could tell that they hated each other. I didn't need Neil Simon to tell me. Uh, I saw from the way they behaved backstage uh, towards one another, they couldn't stand each other. But they were stuck. It was like a, a bad marriage. They were stuck in this act, which was a success. The act was a success, but their personal relations were terrible. And who would have thought, certainly not your teenage self, that you would one day be a radio person and that your radio focus would be poetry? Well, the, the, the poetry, remember, I, I grew up with, I was the last generation to grow up with old radio, the last of the golden age of radio. Um, my, the next generation watched TV, and I was a transitional generation. And something funny happened, which was that I was listening to all these radio shows, you know. And I shamed my father into getting us a television, not intentionally, but that's what happened, because I went over to my friend Frankie Giacomo's house to watch The Lone Ranger every, whatever it was, Wednesday or Thursday when it was on. And so he was ashamed because of that, and he decided to uh, buy us a television. And I decided I would, you know, still listen to all my radio shows, even though we had the TV, but I'd listen to them. And, of course, I didn't. And then... One day, I went back to see what was happening on all those shows. They were all gone. <laughs> it was all my fault. But radio had to interest you by the voice. You know, who knows what evil. The lurks. shadow. And the, that's the fella. Yeah, yeah. And it had to grab you right away by the sound of the voice, by the words. And so there was a poetic element to those old shows. And I think that the notion of many voices and the notion of multiplicity through many voices came to me partly through old radio. And your notion of breath. Yes. That breath, that poetry is breath. Yes. That, that is also part of radio because it's about voice and the spirit 
being carried through the voice. Absolutely. And of course, voice is the way they pronounce poetry in Brooklyn, right? I've written a book of voice. <laughs> but yes, and um, though there's another tradition of poetry which is also important, which is a visual tradition and which is manifests as concrete poetry, mu much of which cannot be spoken, literally cannot be spoken. And that's important too. I know you love vaudeville, but I know you also love musical comedy and music and songs you could dance to, tap dance to, in fact. And I know Gershwin is one of your favorites. And I really love this poem that's from choruses called Gershwin. Yes, I have a, there's a lot to that. Um, I try to explain to people that that poem, though Gershwin is in it, it's not a portrait of Gershwin. It's an attempt to be Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> it's an attempt to give something of the experience of, of of his symphonic pieces with all of the the different elements to them and the different areas. I mean, Gershwin, too, moves between high art and very low art. And often in the same piece, in the next couple of minutes, it'll all change. And that was something that appealed to me immensely. And that um, it was both populist and at the same time aware of all the stuff that happens at the highest reaches of consciousness. He knew all of those things. Um, he himself, uh, Michael Feinstein, told me a story in which uh, uh, Gershwin sits down, a friend of his, and he, he plays this, various things. And he's improvising, doing all kinds of stuff. And he finishes. And Gershwin turns to the man and he says... Wasn't that wonderful? And he wasn't bragging. He didn't know where it came from. He was as impressed by it as his listener was. And it came from, as far as he could tell, nowhere. It came from that larger area of life that I felt poetry connected me to when I first read poetry. That some out there, you know, uh, not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. It was that wind that blew through me that I was experiencing something larger than my own particular mind and life. And that was true about Gershwin, too. And that was why he said, well, wasn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, where'd that come from? Um, and um, Michael decided that, uh, you know, it was totally a gift from God. That's what it was. Well, this thing you say about him going from uh, the populist or the lowbrow to the highbrow mm -hmm. in that one piece of music you have right here in that poem where you say about yourself that, uh, but for all my high-minded attitudes and highbrow interests, vaudeville. Actually, that's a quote. The uh, <laughs> uh, One of the things that interested me was, um, you know, that business of the I, who is it? And the first line of this, it happened during the summer of 1919. I was then 12. I couldn't have been 12 right. in the summer of 1919, but I'm saying it, and I'm saying the I. And so there's this mixture of somebody other than myself and myself. This is from a, um, a book of about experiencing Gershwin. I used every second line uh, in, the, <laughs> in one of the introductions, or the introduction to the book, and um, he's talking about his experience of Gershwin. And so I used every second line of his, his introduction. Oh, and that's why some of the lines don't, the next line doesn't match. make sense to that's the, right. yeah. Oh. It happened during the summer of 1919. I was then 12. Resort in Hunter, New York. One day, a young man was per, Mountain Resort Auditorium. 
Anyway, it goes on in that way, um, in which I'm jumping around from one thing or another. But you get the whole story anyway. So, yes, you do, after a while. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of like found poetry. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And um, that whole, at the end, you know... Uh, Vaudeville. In fact, to put it bluntly, I was crazy about for on Broadway or the Alhambra in Harlem or during the in Brooklyn. The fact that I often had to sit through routines bothered me not at all. I was so infatuated with Pat Rooney or with Nora Bay singing Shine on Harvest Moon or Bill Down a Flight of Stairs that these were always new, exciting dozen times. Been Nora Bay's or Sophie Tucker presented a musical Catch My Breath. Never before had I heard an American popular Rickles structure. So unusual in the intervallic leaps of its melodies. It was true, yes, but only where sex was understood as a weapon. So I'm making an intervallic leap in the melody of my poem right there. And your re reference to summertime here, summer swishing of rain, sunny, or, like the sun, swimming in good health, safe and sound, asunder, separate, torment, toil, southern, towards the south, I wash, bore, swine, toil, labor, trouble, misery, be weary, swing, vibration, surge of the sea, beset, scourge, beat or flap the wings, whip, make helpless by magic, go, weaken, give way, desist, depart, resolve, move, grow dark, vanish, cease, swan, firmament, I arrange, array, tent, building, punishment, torment, torture by burning, offer a sacrifice, caulk, paint with tar, denoy, deny, sorry, Deny, deprive of, withhold, pull apart, destroy, time, while our season, I beget, young, multiply, I injure, firm, to walk on, offspring, progeny, men, brilliance, beauty, joy, gladness, brilliant, radiant, happy, glad, gracious, kind, I sin, be guilty, I gird, bind, round, joy in drunk pouring, Pride, wantonness, spiritual, ghostly, spiritual in spirit, frightful, I frighten, torment, persecute, I hesitate, delay, hinder, joy in drinking, pouring, hold fast, sex, odor, become hateful, thank, replay, traveling weaver, spider, sea, water, name of Laroon, I alleviate. I delay. Nina, thank you. That was a beautiful reading of that passage. And uh, you were somewhat surprised to discover that what it was, um, what all those words are, were um, meanings of Anglo-Saxon words. I had an Anglo-Saxon dictionary, and I was taking and the meaning struck me as very interesting, you know. And I put them together in this this passage, so that that they were sort of set in a certain way. So I'm setting something that I hadn't myself written, but I had I am setting it. It's like setting a lyric or something like that. But even more so, Gershwin, you know, I wanted to get something that was oral and old, which Anglo-Saxon certainly was, both old and oral and um, include that 
in this poem of mine, which was meant to be a kind of, in a way, an imitation of Gershwin. I felt it was something that Gershwin might do to take old things like this and make them new again by doing something like that. And there are many other things in the poem, which is a kind of ragbag of all kinds of elements. There's a translation of uh, Baudelaire in the poem. There's all sorts of things. And uh, how do you feel this all connects up to Gershwin, which is what the poem was about? I think that Gershwin, well, it's not about Gershwin, it's about Rhapsody in Blue. Remember, ah, it's yes, not a portrait. Piece, it's not a portrait of, of Gershwin, but a portrait in a certain sense of his sensibility, uh, of his mind. Now he is in the poem, but it's a portrait of his sensibility, and I felt that his sensibility was like that. He he did. Want, I mean, he would take pieces. For example, he, he uh, would turn pieces upside down. He'd take a piece of music and turn it upside down and play it that way and various things like that, that kind of thing. And he would take stuff that were basic, that was basically sort of quotations. Charles Ives is in this thing too, who also, there are certain pieces of Ives that are nothing but quotations. And so all of that was a kind of association of mine with George Gershwin. And as I say, he's, he's in it, but here's how it ends. The poem is aware that Gershwin is dead, and that becomes an element of the poem. Uh, Look, George, you can't do it anymore. You're dead. Let me add that piano. But here's how it ends. Gershwin, dead, woke after the funeral, his mind clear, his eyes open. This, he thought, is what it's like to be dead. It was not too bad. There was a dead piano near him. He walked over to it, began to play. Minor sixth, seventh. The chord structure pleased him. He puffed on a dead cigar and looked around himself at the infinitely widening dead expanses of the world. He listened carefully. Who among the dead could write words? Thanks to Nina Serrano for interviewing me, Jack Foley. Thanks to Kevin Vance. Thank you all for listening.